So the frogs are going to give the talk this evening. We're all going to sit quiet and listen. If you come on one of my nature retreats, that's actually what happens, (laughs) mostly. Because actually, if we just simply get quiet and we do listen, it's like everything else melts away for a moment or two. And then they stop, they become self conscious. <laughs> Shh, everybody's listening. <laughs> I'm still amazed after 30 years of practice that when we as it were, drop into presence, become really fully present in the moment without any movement towards or against anything, with complete acceptance. It is like things melt away. Almost the world melts away. And it speaks to this possibility that the teachings point to, that wisdom teachings point to, that peace is not just available, which it is, but it's also inherently on nature. Just like the sky is always there, even it's covered in fog or clouds or storms or haze. When the clouds part, the sky is, we see it's still there, ever present. So it's a practice is a little like this. We look at all the things that obscure, that get in the way, that trouble us, that bind us, that we get into conflict with, inner and outer. And when that struggle ceases, we come to rest more in our nature, which is inherently peaceful. But that's kind of a rare thing. Have you noticed? There's a lot of obscure obstacles or obscurations. So the Buddha had this lovely line, he said, the nature of the mind is naturally pure and radiant. The nature of the mind is naturally pure and radiant. How many people have noticed that? (laughs) Or have you noticed something else? (laughs) Maybe at times you've noticed that, that there's a, at some point in the day, there's a certain clarity wakefulness, like a pristineness in between all the fog and clouds and hindrances. But then he says, and, and the, the mind is pure and radiant, but is obscured by visiting tendencies of mind, is obscured by visiting tendencies and habits of mind and heart. So mostly we hang out in the second part. We hang out in what's obscuring that natural radiance and peace. We hang out in the stuff, in our busy mind, in our reactivities, in our worries, and all of that. That's what we call our life usually, interspersed with moments of clarity and peace. And in a way, the retreat is designed and meditation is designed to support the access and the understanding and the availability to that clarity and that peace and that natural sense of well-being. And I know many of you talked about having moments of being touched like that or seeing clearly for a little bit. Even if the meditation itself is very foggy and seems like you're just forever struggling with the mind and thinking and yanking the mind back to the present, 
Maybe that happens most meditations, but maybe sometimes after meditation of that struggle, you walk outside and the mind is just clear and you see the spring day and you're just bowled over with uh, wonder or awe or reverence for the beauty and the sacredness and the mystery of life. So I want to bow to your practice. You've put in some hard work on the cushion for the last 48 hours. It's not so easy to face ourselves without distraction, without our toys to distract us. This is work, this is spiritual work, to face ourselves, face our mind, heart, body experience. And see, as the Buddha's pointing to, what's obscuring this natural sense of well-being? How come after 48 hours at Spirit Rock where I'm just in relative nirvana here, it's pretty beautiful, it's pretty as good as it gets and from some perspectives, how come I'm still feeling whatever you're feeling? Tormented, bored, restless, anxious, fearful, doubting, right? So we want to look at those obscurations, those obstacles, which Diana pointed to yesterday. So I feel fortunate having stumbled across the Buddhist path many years ago because the Buddha had a lot of clarity through his awakening, through his own insight, awareness, enlightenment, he saw really clearly the nature of reality, the nature of the human experience, and what, how we create so much torment for ourselves, how we create so much mental and psychological suffering. And he saw a way out, which is what he realized for himself, and he was a human being just like us. And he, through his ministry over 45 years after his awakening, he shared various ways, tools, practices, methods, insights to help people wake up, to help people understand the human condition, to find ways to uh, free themselves from the way that they were causing themselves further suffering. So one of those maps is the map of the Four Noble Truths, which some of you have probably heard about. Some of you probably studied a lot. Some of you, this might be new. So it's really the, the ground or the foundation of the Buddhist path. These four truths. Truth that there is unsatisfactoriness. There is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Anybody notice that? There is suffering, sometimes it's called. really means, the literal translation of dukkha, this word means difficult to bear. There are things in this life that are difficult to bear. And you've probably sat with many of them over this last two days. Anxiety, fear, tiredness, uh, loneliness, um, physical pain, mental angst, just to name a few. There are things that are difficult to bear. And I'm going to talk a little about that. And then he talked about the, the cause, how we, how we find ourselves in this mental, emotional, psychological suffering. But he didn't stop there. He didn't say, no, there's only two truths and you're stuck. Tough luck, people. No, there's the third truth. Is that there's the cessation of suffering. That peace Freedom is available, is possible in this lifetime. And the fourth truth is there's a path. There are ways, there are practices that have been now tried and tested for thousands of years that support us walking our way through this journey of life into ever more clarity, peace, compassion, 
So he laid out other maps and other ways of understanding our experience and pointed to universal truths that affect all of us. And what he asked of his students and what we ask of you and ask of ourselves is we lean in, we turn towards our experience, whether it's beautiful or tragic. We turn towards it with curiosity, with interest, with courage, actually. It takes a lot of courage to be with yourself and your stuff. And this is somewhat counterintuitive. You know, mostly our culture is telling us, don't be with the difficult stuff. Buy something. You know, eat something. Do something. Fly somewhere, anything but be with yourself and your experience. That's, um, that's the messaging we've had imprinted for decades and decades. Right? You can get through this life by just having a lot of stuff. Right? That will make you happy. The evidence suggests it doesn't work. <laughs> the amount of people on antidepressants and on anti-anxiety meds and all the other kind of medication, and people self-medicating through alcohol and drugs. and right? We're not a very happy society. You know, the National Happiness Index, which was developed in Bhutan, which was ranked at the number one happiest country, Buddhist country, uh, America f- falls way down the list. Certainly the most materially abundant culture, but not the happiest culture by a long way. So we turn towards it. So this is a New York cartoon from about Humpty Dumpty. So Humpty Dumpty goes to the therapy office. The therapist is saying, Humpty Dumpty, we have to get you to the place where you can put yourself back together. So this is what we're doing here. We're, we're all Humpty Dumpties, and we're learning how to see, meet the brokenness, actually. Meet the places that we fall apart. Meet the places that are you know, shattered in some ways. Meet those with love, with understanding, with kindness, with healing. So one of the truths that the Buddha pointed to, which is not rocket science to anybody, is that we live in a changing, transient world. We can see this in our inner experience. We can look at it in the outer world. We're in this beautiful season of spring where everything's emerging. The U.S. War College, when they were studying how to fight in Afghanistan and Iraq, came up with this term for the changing nature of combat. They said, we, we're, we're fighting in a VUCA world, V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, changing, and ambiguous. Could have been said by the Buddha. The Buddha would have said the same thing. We live in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, unstable. He added unreliable. Because things are changing, because things are transient, there's nothing actually really solidly reliable in this life anywhere. And we keep looking for it in experience, in a person, in a job, in money, in buildings, in fame, in wherever we can find it, but actually it doesn't exist. The only certainty is uncertainty. And that in itself is one of the causes for our ongoing sense of dis-ease. Because nothing's certain. Your health isn't, that's for sure. Your relationships, that's for sure. The economy, definitely. Where do you look for security? Where's your refuge? This is a sobering truth. We tend to also deny that. And we pretend that that we can find that security through a big bank account or house or a relationship. And then we find at some point in time they change, they shift. Someone has a health crisis. We lose a job. The economy crashes. We get sick. And we realize there's not so much stability in the outer conditions. So where do we find peace in that? 
the Buddha was pointing to a peace beyond conditions, as in beyond the changing conditions of our life. We can still find a sense of well-being even with this reality that life is uncertain, that life is changing. And of course, that's one of the reasons why many of you are probably here, because you're aware of that, either the suffering, the the first noble truth the Buddha pointed to, the unsatisfactoriness in work, career, relationship, life in whatever way, or because of the pain that arises through change, through transience, through loss. So on a retreat last year, I was doing a retreat for mindfulness-based educators, and uh, I was working with a physician who um, had been working in oncology for 25 years and mostly working with uh, adolescents and with adolescents who have a particular rare form of cancer that has a very low um, success rate for, heal- for, for healing. And so she talked about having these filing cabinets and filing cabinets of clients, all who had died. So you can imagine 25 years of working as a physician in an oncology, she'd, she had a lot, she experienced a lot of loss, loss. And she happened to be a very loving, very caring, very connected, engaged uh, psychiatrist. So she really got to know her clients and really felt and felt their, you know, felt their dilemma and the suffering of the family and um, but in that professional position, which is true for many roles, there was an expectation that she wasn't to show emotion. Almost an expectation that she wouldn't feel emotion, which is ridiculous, but true. And so she came to the retreat with this backlog of 25 years of grief. And she said, I don't know what to do. It's just the burden of this changing on the, the changing world, the, the loss I'm experiencing, it's too much to bear. And she was talked about when needing to cry, I said, let it pour. Let it drain. Let it flood. Let it just pour out of you. So she started crying. She started feeling the backlog of the grief of loss. This is turning towards meeting the reality of our experience. She cried for about a year. She still cries a lot because it was just huge holding in the body. And she kept saying to me, when is it going to end? When is it going to end? I said, everything comes to an end. <laughs> Don't worry, it will come to an end. And it's been about 15 months now and after about a year, it sort of started to work its way out. Um, and, f- and she's found a renewed sense of buoyancy doesn't take the, re- the painful reality away of the loss, but allows the movement. And so we've been talking today about working with emotions and allowing the emotions to f- move through whatever they are, grief, loss, tears, sadness, joy, love, anxiety, meeting them with a kind attention. When we pay close attention to reality, to our experience, it can be a profound motivator for our practice. In many Buddhist traditions, there's different practices that invite us to reflect on this reality of impermanence of change. To to look at our mortality, to see this too is going to pass, this body is going to pass. What am I going to do with my life knowing that I may have, who knows, I may have one day, one week, one year, ten years, five decades, but at some point it's going to run out. Every day we're one step closer to death. We can find that morbid or we can find that inspiring to make us make the most of this day, this breath, this life, this moment, this relationship. This is a poem from Ellen Bass, a wonderful poet. She writes, What if you knew you'd be the last to touch somebody? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm or press your fingertips into the crease of a lifeline. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. 
They just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless and pinned against time? What would we do if we knew this meeting, this moment was the last time we would have this moment, this conversation, this person? Right? We would wait, we would pay attention and we never know. Maybe you'll come back and do 50 retreats at Spirit Rock. Maybe this will be your last retreat. We don't know. So we have another 18 hours to be here. So let's make the most of this rather than think about the cappuccino I'm going to have or the first thing when I get to Fairfax (laughs) or that pizza or whatever it is, lovemaking or playing music or dancing. There's plenty of time for all that stuff. It's wonderful. Enjoy it when it comes. Right now be here for this. Wonderful moment, potentially. So we've had plenty of time to explore this first noble truth, unsatisfactoriness of the body, painful body, achy body, no matter how how good your yoga is, how comfortable your zaffir is, you're going you're to feel uncomfortable. Painful, achy. Right? Maybe you've got some chronic pain, which many of you have, so you're really aware of the, the, unsat- and the, the painfulness of the body. But then we've also been looking very directly at the, the, the unsatisfactoriness of, the mind, of an untrained mind. Right? We didn't sign up for a mind that's crazy busy and following every single thought like a little young Labrador pu- puppy. Right? But it is. Right? We just, oh, that's all. That looks good. What about that? Ooh, not the breath, that's boring. (laughs) It's wearisome, isn't it? Wearisome. You try and sit down, just follow your breath. It's not rocket science. And like 95% of the time, we're elsewhere. And maybe now we're down to 94%. You know, we're an improvement, slowly, slowly. It's a good thing. And maybe you've been seeing some of your habits, right? We're creatures of habits. And we, 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 we're seeing, as we said in the beginning, we're seeing here what we practice in our lives. We pra- what do we practice in our lives? Thinking, following every thought, reacting, grasping after things that, we, that look good, resisting and hating things that we don't like. Right? So guess, what, that's, guess what we see? We see our tendencies of mind. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. So, and even when we see them, even when we're clear, okay, I know if I pick up that work thought, I'm going to be lost for five minutes. Breathing in, breathing out. What about that work issue? Oh, yeah. And we're lost for five minutes. And we go, I told you. Okay, breathing in, breathing out. Yeah, but what about that other thing? Tendencies are so strong. Right? That's why practice takes a while, takes a lifetime actually. Training the mind, training the brain. But fortunately, the nature of the brain is plastic. Right? This development in neuroscience, understanding the neuroplasticity of the brain, what we pay attention to changes the structure of the brain. We have that power actually. It's not set in stone. So this is a piece that speaks to the the power of our ha- habits. Right? Some of you know this is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And it's a metaphor for our lives. I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I don't see it. I fall in. I'm helpless. It takes forever to find a way out. Right? So whatever your hole is. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. No, I pretend I don't see it. I fall in. I'm still lost. It's still not my fault. I take, I, I, it still takes a while to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. 
there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it, most important part of this story. I see it, I still fall in, it's a habit. I know where I am, it is my fault, I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street, there's a hole in the sidewalk, I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. <laughs> so that it's a great metaphor for it's slow. Right? First we ignore it, first we're in delusion, first we're in denial, then we sort of see it, and then we, but we don't want to see it, and we just keep going down the rabbit hole. Thoughts, reactivity, longings, fantasy, wherever we think will make us happy. And finally we wake up, we go, that's suffering to hold on to that vendetta. It's, it's suffering to hold on to this, living my life in the future for, the fu- from some fu- for some future reality. And then the chapter six is um, for the bodhisattvas in the room, the activists in the room, we go back down the street and we fill it in. (laughs) And then the Buddhas in the room go back down the street and they actually dig it up again. Because actually, that's how we learn, right? Through stuff. So, um, So with practice, we're turning towards. This is a really important shift in our journey. We t- we're, we're, we're open to turning into, turning towards our experience, whatever it is, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. <clears throat> At Chan Chah, this lovely line, great Thai master, who said, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away, which we do, how many, who doesn't run away from their suffering? Who wants to experience suffering? Who wants to like, sit with pain? No. We put the TV on, we drink a beer, we're in the Ben and Jerry's ice cream pint, we're you know, who knows what. But has anybody succeeded running away from their suffering? Does it really work? No, it follows us around like a backpack. So, back to the Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha said, well, what, what's the cause of suffering? How do we get into this mess? So he pointed to three things. And again, I'm, whatever we teach up here, it's, a, it's an offering for you to investigate. It's not dogma. It's not a Bible. It's take a look and see. When you're suffering, take a look. What is the cause of the particular suffering? So the first is the, he said, the grasping for sensual pleasure, for sense pleasure. And you probably noticed this this last two days, how much the mind has leaned towards some fantasy about sense pleasure. What's for dinner? food, what am I going to eat when I get home? If only they serve coffee for breakfast. If only they had bacon and egg, you know, whatever. Like, we're, we're so, you know, we live in a very sensory world and we have access to every kind of sense pleasure that we can basically conjure up. And, and, we, and we're told, you know, consumer culture, that's how we get, that's how we be happy. You know, have a lot of stuff and, you know, eat a lot of stuff and that brings happiness. It doesn't work. Despite what the consumer culture tells us. This is my favorite Dharma ad. This is from, um, well, I'll tell you who it is at the end. So there's a guy sitting in meditation like this, which if you've ever done that for a long time is really hard on the biceps. Um, and he, uh, he's sitting with all his gear. He's got his um, kayak and his scuba and his golf clubs, his guitar, his bike, his skis, his dog, like everything you'd want, like a young guy would want, you know, theoretically. And it says, Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. (laughs) That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking f- uh, no further than into the, the, the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. <laughs> so that's the messaging, right? We get that like, you know, thousands of times a day if we if tune into media. With the, with the presumption of the belief system, if I have this, so you, may, you might see this in your mind, if only I brought my nice pashmina shawl, the meditation would be, if only I had more money, more of this, more of that, my life would be better. You know, not, not denying that there's a place for enjoying things and having things, 
but pinning our happiness on them is a whole different ballgame. And what happens is we, we start postponing our happiness until we have, get, acquire, buy, own something. Right? doesn't work. Or at least it's momentary. The, the happiness we get when we get something like that taste of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, the, the happiness, apart from the fact that there's a pleasurable sensation in the, in the mouth, it's the relief of the absence of craving that brings the peace. Right? Whenever we get something, there's a moment of peace because it's the quenching of the craving. It's the cessation of the craving. But as soon as we had that ice cream, then we want coffee. And then we drink and then we want something else. And then, you know, and it's endless. This is samsara, the cycle of the endless round. And there's an ad I saw in a magazine. I love looking through magazines for these kind of ads. And there was a guy on a bike, really high-end bike, road bike, which I love to, I love to road bike. And, and the, the, the ad was chasing the perfect moment. And it was such a metaphor for this state of consciousness, chasing the perfect moment, the perfect day, the perfect experience. Right? Think about the best thing you've ever had in your life, the peak, joyful, happiest experience. Where is it? It's ancient history. It's a dream. Right? It was beautiful at the time, and now it's just one of gazillion million experiences. Right? And so when we see this, when we understand the transience of it, we can enjoy it. We actually enjoy it even more. When I see the, that beautiful cherry-like blossom tree outside, I can appreciate it because I know in two weeks that's going to be green. It's not going to be pink anymore. And you see this verdant, green, lush hillsides. I know, I appreciate it even more because I know in a month it's going to be brown as it was for the last nine months with the drought. Right? So it's not that we go, we shun experience. No, it makes us enjoy it, but we also don't hold on to it. I used to, when I first moved here, I moved from England and I, I, I love the green rolling hill thing because that's what England is because it rains all the time. And every May, I start getting contracts like, oh no, it's going to start going brown. <laughs> and I'd like try and like as if, I, as if I could hold on with my own grasping, make the hill stay green. Right? Of course, you know, it's the nature of the, the grass cycle here. It's, they seed and they, and they die. So, and so, the, so to notice the pain of that grasping, the pain of longing. Right? We get seduced by focusing on the, the juiciness of the object but we don't see how contracted it's tunnel vision. We exclude everything else and often hurt people in the pursuit of getting what we want. Right? This, this world, this, this planet is suffering horrifically because of our greed, because of this one-pointed fixation on what we want at any cost. And right now the cost is the cost of the sustainability of the planet and species and So the second type of uh, cause, the second cause for uh, uh, dissatisfaction is uh, what the Buddha called craving for existence or becoming. Becoming someone. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the grasping of, of selfing, of the self. Wanting to, it's like the, the never-ending personality improvement path. The never-ending self-help process. Self-improvement. Fixing the personality, as Rumi talked about, rearranging the prisons, rearranging the furniture in the prison cell. As Lily Tomlin put it, I always wanted to be somebody, but I should have been more specific. (laughs) It's this endless, like, if only when I become, when I get this, when when I have this, when I become a great meditator, or whatever the next form of becoming self-improving personality processes. It's endless. And what was a really great wake-up call for me was realizing the personality does not get enlightened. The personality is the personality. We get insight about the personality. We realize the personality is not who we are. It's a, it's a construct we make in our mind that we try and polish and make good to and present to the world. Another conditioned, impermanent an unsatisfactory thing because it's always changing. There's a great 
piece by the poet Kabir about the spiritual becoming, the spiritual self. So he says, friends, please tell me about what I can, what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe. You know, and there's nice you know, spiritual robes. But I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap, but I still throw it over my shoulder elegantly. I pulled back my sexual longings, but now I discovered I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds to one thing. The mind is a tenacious thing, and it clings to this, and then this, and then this. You maybe notice that in meditation. You're meditating, you're struggling, and hindrances, and busy mind, and then suddenly everything comes clear, and either through magic or mystery or who knows, through the hard effort you've done here. And then you start getting more focused and concentrating, clear and calm and peaceful. And then maybe a little joy arises, a little rapture, a little bliss. And you go, okay, wait, here we are. I've arrived. Okay, it's going to last forever. hope someone's noticing how still I am. I'm going to sit through the walking, the whole walking period, because I'm so... And then we start building, and then so I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the three-month retreat next year. I'm going to become a monk. You know, we start building this whole edifice of me as the great meditator. And then, all we start, then, then we just get lost in thinking. Right? And then we get agitated, and then all the calm disappears, and we go, what happened? Right? There's just another form of becoming, another, the way the, the ego claims experience, inflates itself, and then this inevitable cl- crash and then the other aspect of the ego, the superego, the judge, the critic comes in and goes, why did you do that? You blew it. You had it and you lost it. You fool. And then we're miserable and we're hating ourselves. And we're back to that agitated state. So the converse of the, the grasping mind is the aversive mind. The resisting, avoidant, fearful, angry. Basically, the, all these, all these the wor- things that the Buddha pointed to are the ways that we're in contention with the moment. Contention with ourselves, contention with experience, contention with reality. We're not wanting it, we're not liking how it is, so we're fixing, controlling, changing, improving, getting rid of, hating, grabbing, attaching. Right? There's always this constant struggle with our inner and outer experience which is diametrically opposed to what we've been speaking about with this, this fundamental orientation of mindfulness, which is simply being with, opening to, allowing, meeting, understanding. It's actually very revolutionary. The Buddha called it, it's an against the stream of, it's against the stream of, our, of our norms in our culture, back then and now, same, same. It's against the stream to not get in there and fix and control and change and get anxious and fearful and hating. And right? We like what's pleasant, we hate what's unpleasant, and we spend our time struggling between those two poles and getting our life perfectly arranged so we don't experience the unpleasant and we just have the pleasant. Has anybody succeeded yet in doing that? Right? No, forget it, a waste of time. Life is full of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences. But we still try. And it's somewhat hardwired. You know, our brain is oriented towards threat and negative threat uh, experiences. You know, it's said that we, for, to counteract each um, negative comment or evaluation or experience, we need at least three to five positive experiences. Because our brain is so habitually oriented towards what's wrong, what needs fixing, what's a threat, what's a problem. You may have noticed that, that, that orientation, that bias, the negativity bias that we have. So we see this in the macro, right? Human beings, we create a hell of a lot of destruction in the world. Warfare, hatred, racism, violence, oppression. But if we look in our own mind, it's the same seed, Many of you have talked about getting annoyed or irritated with 
your neighbors. Like here we are all together, sitting together, and we're all in the same intention. We love each other and all that. But if you just shut the hell up from breathing too loudly, I could meditate. <laughs> and you stop moving over there, and you with the yellow socks, like, right? And we're just like, whoa, what's that? Here I am, so it's been this peaceful, loving, you know, spiritual place thing, you know. And we see that the, 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 an aversion of the mind. It's humbling. If your practice isn't humbling you, you need to look a little harder because <laughs> it's humbling, right? Just try paying attention, try to focus your attention. It's humbling. One breath, two breaths, doing good. Three breaths, great. And then space out. Which is why we need a lot of compassion and kindness because it's hard. It's hard to be human, hard to wake up, hard to be with ourselves. There's a line from the French philosopher Pasteur who said, um, most of the world's problems could be solved if we could learn to sit by ourselves in a room and do nothing for a few hours. He said that in the 16th century. How more does that apply now? Right? We can't stand for 10 seconds without twiddling our thumbs. You know? And there's a cost. Yeah? We, we're unable to find a sense of well-being or ease because we're so distracted, restless, busy, doing, planning, leaning forward. So we need to be kind and patient with ourselves, essential on the path. This is, from, this is also from the 16th century from Francois Fenelon who said, as light increases, the metaphor of light being meditation or awareness, as light increases, as we see ourselves to be worse than we thought, we are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings, this is with a pinch of salt, like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have harbored that we had, we never could have believed that we'd harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear but we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were, on the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are, lit, we are filled with horror, yet bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the, pu- when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So it's, it's in the seeing of this stuff that actually is freeing. So when someone in the group today was talking about um, seeing how controlling they were or seeing how fearful they were. You know, sometimes this is a new revelation to see it at such a deep level. And it's like, this is a good thing, even though it sucks to feel that, to know that, better to see it than be unconsciously driven by it. Okay. So I tell this story as a good metaphor for... Um, practice. So I was in India in uh, my early years of practice, meditation practice, and I was on a retreat in Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha uh, was said to retain awakening. And um, it's a beautiful Thai temple um, just out on the outskirts of the village of Bodh Gaya. Um, but that because of, as Buddhism got more popular, the town grew, and so the, the village and the markets and, and stuff grew around the temple, so it was no longer the sort of quiet refuge in the rice paddies. It was quite busy and noisy. And this particular year, uh, a travel agency had set up shop outside the gates, and they were advertising bus tickets. through a loud, They put a loudspeaker on top of the, the little shack that they set up, and they would put this tape recording of... Um, uh, announcing the bus tickets, so it would go, and, and we would hear it because we were in this concrete room, no soundproofing or nothing, and the thing would go really loud various times a day when the pilgrims were walking past, Tibetan pilgrims walking past, and it, it, the tape thing would go, it was two or three minute tape that would go, hello, 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 and you go, hmm? and then it would say some words in Hindi, like, and I, I you know some words in Hindi, and then it would, you'd hear towns like Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi, Darjeeling, Madras, and then a few more words in Hindi, and then you'd hear the tape were writing. It was a cassette tape. This is like dating myself. A cassette tape were writing. And then it would start again. Hello, 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 hello. You go, what, me? <laughs> Something? <laughs> uh, hello, Bombay, Madras, Calcutta, Delhi. 
and then rewind and start again. And this was like day two of the 20-day silent meditation retreat. It was like, shoot me now. And we weren't allowed to leave the retreat grounds and we went so we couldn't practice nonviolent direct action by cutting cords or, you know, whatever, <laughs> unplug the power or something. And we'd actually pray for the power to, the, the electricity to go off, which it did a lot at that time in Bihar. And um, so we're sitting and it's just like getting madder and madder. Like, we're in the sacred town and we're in meditation retreat and who do they think they are? And, you know, commercialism, we're trying to be so holy and pure and. And I'm just getting more hatred and anger and frustration and who, anger and just getting really into a, just a stew. And it went off in days, like in days, it's like, God, would they shut up? And I'd stand at the gate sometimes, like, and just listen, like, just like, <laughs> and, and, you know, and there's nothing to do except sit with it, just like you've sat with your own experience and pain or whatever dramas you've been going through and at some point you 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 can't you can only sustain that blame game for so long and at some point you see i started to see it like oh wait a minute like this yeah it's a pain in the ass that they're making this sound but i'm the one who's getting really upset they're just you know selling bus tickets and i'm like and i started to see oh the suffering is in my mind the suffering is in my reaction the suffering is in my hatred it's not in the sound it's in my contortion around it and so seeing that over the days, and it took some time, I'm a slow learner, it's like, oh, the, when the sound would come, I'd see the light and I'd go, oh, nothing to do but surrender, which India is a wonderful place to surrender. If you don't, you suffer miserably. So, because there's a lot of things out of your control. Here we have the illusion of control, but in other some countries, it's less, less illusion, it's more reality. And so over time, I just began to relax and, uh, and over time it became just sound. It was noise and then sound. And, then, and, over, over, and the times when the power would go off, I'd start to miss it. And then it'd be like, oh, and they'd come back and say, oh, there it is again. Right? And it was, the teaching was two things. One, the sound didn't have to go for me to be happy. Right? We think if something's horrible and unpleasant, we have to get rid of it and then we can be happy. Right? But the, if the suffering is in our mind, not the thing, then it's really examining our relationship. And practice is all about examining our relationship because it's in the relationship where the suffering lies, not in the thing itself. Right? We're going to start construction next month. There's going to be lots of backhoes and diggers and things. And I'm, I'm like, great, we'll have something to practice with. Like real life coming in, sound, diggers, beeping, right? And we'll see, where's the suffering? Is it in the sound or is it in our mind? It's in our mind. Yeah. So there's a great... Um, uh, piece from Achan Char again who um, has a lot of teachings about working with sound but this is uh, one when he was he um, uh, came to uh, a meditation retreat center on the east coast and people were complaining about the sound of diggers outside and he said um, when we sit in meditation and hear a sound we think oh that sound's bothering me and if we understand that the sound bothers us then we suffer accordingly if we investigate, we will see that it's we who go out and disturb the sound. The sound is simply the sound. If we understand it like this, then there's nothing more to it. We leave it be. We see that the sound is one thing, we are another. One who understands that the sound comes to disturb him is one who doesn't see himself clearly. When you're at ease, the sound is just sound. Why should you go out and grab it? This is the nature of the grasping, aversive mind. We grab things, we blame, we hate, we push away, and we suffer. So I'm not going to leave you with the second noble truth because, as I said, there's a third and a fourth noble truth. The third noble truth is the truth of cessation, that peace is possible, that freedom from suffering is available in the moment and in your life, in relationship to anything, just like it was in relationship with me with that sound. So the, the, the goal of the path in, in Buddhist practice is nirvana, peace beyond conditions. Right? Which means we examine our relationship to conditions. We see the reactivity is the cause of our suffering. Whether it's our knee pain, our degenerative illness, our declining relationship, our health, uh, our, our, our hatred of the political system. We see the suffering is in our own reactivity. So, um, 
with mindfulness, we get to examine this moment by moment. We get to see where we cling. We get to see where we attach. We get to see where we contract. And mindfulness, as we were speaking earlier, provides a space, a little a gap between stimulus and response. There's a lovely line from the writer Viktor Frankl, who survived concentration camps, who knows a lot about suffering. He says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. Between that sound and my reaction, there's a space. In that space lies our power and our freedom to choose our response. In our response lies our freedom and happiness. Right? This is really good, like a summary of Dharma practice teaching. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. There's always stimulus, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When we're not conscious, we react. We don't, there's no space. When, we, when, we, when there's space, we see there's a space to choose our response, to see the sound and go, oh, sound. Or to feel the knee pain and go, ah, reaction, and feel the contraction. In our response lies our freedom and happiness. He also went on to say, um, everything can be taken away from, from us except one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Mindfulness provides the choice, the potential to choose rather than react. Right? This, is, this is a moment of freedom. And freedom only exists moment to moment. There's no grand freedom and then you retire. There's no enlightened retirement there's just this moment, how you relate to it. Life does not get easier. Life is life. And as we get older, it probably gets harder. It does get harder. The body starts to disintegrate. We lose loved ones, right? It doesn't get easier. Our relationship can get more wiser and more skillful and compassionate. So there's more ease and peace in relationship to the conditions. So the poet Hafiz put it this way. He said, um, uh, uh, we, uh, what did he say? He said lots of things. Um, uh, you carry all the ingredients in your life to turn, you carry all the ingredients within you to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. A little bit of rea- unconsciousness, a little bit of reactivity, a little bit of blame, and then your relationship has a big blowout. But he said, you also have the ingredients within you to turn your life and existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. It's what we're doing here. Mindfulness, awareness, kindness, patience, pausing, clarity, non-reactivity, letting go, right? Those are really wholesome ingredients. The more we develop them, the more likely we'll live a skillful life. So one of my favorite... um, heroes of the Buddhist tradition is Achan Buddhadasa, who was a a radical thinker of the last century um, and lived in the forest, was a big nature lover. His his monastery was called Garden of Liberation. And he would, if you went to study with him, he'd tell you, go in the forest, sit and walk and let nature reveal your nature. And um, he had this understanding of nirvana. He said, and there's nirvana, you know, the sort of the, the pinnacle of, of the, the fruition of practice. But he said there's also moments of nirvana, moments of peace, moments of the absence of greed, hatred, and ignorance. Right? He said if we didn't have this, we would burn. We, 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 wouldn't, we couldn't live. There are many, many, many moments where we're not reacting, where we do see the, the space and we do choose our response. We, and practice mindfulness allows more of those mindfulness more of those moments to to be present where we see the painfulness of holding on we see the painfulness of attachment we see the painfulness of hating and reacting so we so there's more capacity to to release them and so uh, as our practice as our wisdom as our kindness grows there are more and more moments of peace and i certainly see this in my experience more and more peace is more available not that I don't get stressed, not that I don't struggle in different ways, not that my body doesn't have its own suffering, but more and more access to peace, to non-reactivity. And out of that, that, that clarity, someone asked in the group today, well, you know, what about life? What about acting? Out of the clarity, 
So, the, so um, this is the third noble truth. The fourth noble truth is the path leading to, but it's also the way our freedom expresses itself. And so out of, the, out of wise mindfulness, out of clarity, out of non-reactivity, we have the discernment to know how to act. We don't just stop with wise mindfulness and wise seeing. We're also living in the world, acting, t- making decisions, um, moving in different ways, talking, right? taking action. So our, our clarity, our, our kindness, our, the wisdom that arises from the practice informs how we are in the world. That's the point, how we live. Right? And the last thing I want to say is um, uh, the, 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 the other fruit that arises out of mindfulness, out of being with ourselves in this patient way, with clarity, with understanding, allows this compassion to arise. It's really being, starting to be understood more clearly how mindfulness is the building block for empathy. The, those factors are the, uh, the, the similar parts of the brain responsible both for attention and for empathy, for sensory processing and empathy. By knowing our own experience, we can know the experience of another. And out of empathy arises understanding of another and arises our capacity to have care and concern and compassion. Right? So by doing our work here, we actually do both uh, learn how to open our heart to ourselves and our own struggle, which of course allows us to bring that to others. So one of the fruits of the path is this growing development of heartfulness, which is why also we do metapractice as a way to support the heart to grow. So I'm going to leave you with a uh, story that's kind of a funny metaphor for that. Let me leave you with a couple of things. Um, This is a story um, about a man who's um, following this woman walking around the grocery store. And she's got a little three-year-old. And three-year-old's in the shopping trolley thing, um, cart. And... Uh, of course, the, the, you know, usual hell realm, taking your kids shopping. Every time the, she goes past an, an aisle where there's cookies, the, the, the kid screams, you know, not screams, but, you know, she clamors, you know, mom, can I have some cookies? And the mother says, no. And then, of course, the little girl has a little, you know, reaction, little hissy fit. And the mom says, um, now, Monica, we just have half the hours left to go through. It won't be long. Don't be upset. And then they go around a few more aisles, they get to the candy aisle. And again, the, the child asks, oh, mom, can I have some candy? And when told she wasn't going to have some candy, she has a little tantrum. And her mother says, there, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, then we'll be checking out. And then lastly, they get to the checkout. And of course, there's a whole another bunch of gum and stuff. And the kid wants some gum. And when told she's not going to have some gum, she gets a little hysterical. And, Monica, and, and, and the mom says, now, Monica... We'll go through this checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and we can all take a nice nap. The man follows them out of the parking lot and stops the woman to compliment her. I couldn't believe, I couldn't, I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica. He began, whereupon the mother says, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. <laughs> <clears throat> so... That's how we are with ourselves, patient, kind, right? Slowly, slowly, and out of that emerges, you know, we, should, we begin to share that with others. Okay, so let's sit together. We'll say a little more about the Eightfold Path tomorrow as we're talking about going home. But right now, as you sit, sit with a sense of open relaxation. I'm going to read a couple of lines from this beautiful passage from Tibetan teacher Gendon Rinpoche. Speaking to this, the power of non-grasping, he says, happiness can be, cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. 
So just sit with that. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Okay, so thank you for your attention. We have about half an hour for some walking practice. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.